Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. And I'm here with two special guests. I have Greg McCann and Jesus Casada. Thank you all for joining me today. Nice to be here. Pleasure. Greg is a founder and board member of Generation Six, a family enterprise consulting firm. He has consulted, coached, taught, and written about family enterprises for 25 years. Jesus is an advisor of Generation Six, mainly focused on succession issues and governance. He's been helping family enterprises for the last 20 years. And Greg and I first met at the Southeastern Family Office Forum many, many years ago. Great organization put on this really good, I guess it was a workshop about family dynamics. We're dealing with the same problems today that we were 10 years ago, but hopefully we're making a little bit of progress. Why don't we start off with kind of the genesis behind kind of ex- what Generation 6 is, what the mandate is, the genesis behind launching and, and go from there. Yeah, About two and a half years ago, Joe Astrakhan and Andrew Kite, who I've known for 25 years, asked me if I would help sort of brainstorm about an innovative approach to family business consulting, both within the design of the firm and a more holistic approach to consulting. So a number of us met virtually several times a month. And by Labor Day, Joe and Andrew asked me to become a third partner in that. And extremely flattered. They are just world-class scholars, consultants, speakers. I said yes, and it's been quite an adventure. We now have 11 people. I think we're in five different countries. Jesus is one of those folks. He's in Spain. And there's a real culture. You know, I had worked in public accounting. I was highly opposed to anything that felt like we were a billable hour machine. So there's a culture of generosity, a culture of mutual development, and a much more holistic approach to helping clients than I've seen in many of the consultants I've worked with. So it's been fun. It's been adventurous and hopefully innovative. 
Jesus, I'd love to hear your perspective on how you got engaged, how you first connected with Greg and kind of focus that you have today. Sure. Actually, I met Greg through Generation Six. I didn't, I didn't, I was my first time I, I met him in, in Atlanta, actually. I, I knew Joe Westerken and Andrew Kite before that. And it was through friendship that I joined the group. I was, I was kind of moving into my new career development and I knew Joe and, and, and Andrew very well. And they, they, they just talked to me about this possibility. And when I saw the names that were there, namely Greg was there as well. I, I was just immediately decided to join the group because it was not only a group focused on only a one side approach towards clients. It has a more holistic approach. We do consulting, but we do coaching as well. We advise family offices as well, not family businesses only. And we do that from a very psychological perspective, financial perspective, legal perspective. So it's, it's a, it's a much, much better, wider approach than other consultancies. And, and finally, the quality of the people that forms a group is, is I think, this, the driving force of, of, of the reason why I joined. So there's, there's a lot of challenges today in the world. One of the things that we've been talking to a lot of folks on the show about recently has been this generational transition that's been talked about for a very long time. I think it's actually happening in real time today. would love to hear your thoughts about how your organization is helping families through this leadership transition, not just on the kind of legal technicality papering side, but more developing leadership, actually helping with the handoff. Yeah, great question, Brian. You know, I think, and informed by some of the work that Andrew, Joe, and I did as center directors at universities, the rising generation today is really different, and I think the world's different. So I think the idea of you have to earn credibility over decades doesn't make as much sense as maybe it did in the past. So the rising gen, I think, is asking tough questions about philanthropy, about leadership, about societal impact, about global impact. You know, one of the things we do in Generation 6 that I think is fairly innovative related to your question is, you know, my mentor used to say the senior generation, the parents want to know the kids can get along and they can make good decisions. So we say, why don't we start to practice that now? So let's say a buy-sell agreement or a family employment policy. Let's have the rising gen act not as compliant children taking orders from the older generation, but as engaged professionals. Let them work through, as engaged professionals, the consequences of that employment policy or buy-sell decision. Now, the senior generation probably should retain veto power if something's too radical, but let's start to empower them now. So I think they, they want a seat at the table, they want a voice at the table, and they want to reframe family business to something more, probably holistic to use that term again, where the societal impact, the social justice issues are more on the table than they probably were a generation or two ago. And Jesus, what about the more international perspective on this. Where are you hearing and seeing from families outside of the United States tackling this issue? Sure. Well, I'm based in Europe and I, I work a lot with, with European clients. As you might know, in Europe, there is a clear orientation towards the Green Deal, the digitalization. Those are the main drivers of the European Commission right now. That has an impact in every single family, right? And what families have realized is that it's not up to the, geni- the senior generation to, to be the drivers of that change. The green uh, transformation, and especially the digital transformation, should be led by the next generous. Other thing is that not always the families realize that or they realize that late, but those families who are ahead of the game, they give more and more the responsibility to younger people, the younger generation who will be the drivers 
of those two transitions that the world is, 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 is requiring now. SDGs are in the mouth of everyone. And if you want to compete in the next 10 to 20 years, you, you, you really need to comply with those rules. Greg, you, you were in some really great stuff around kind of the inherent design flaws that are challenging to families and family offices. One of the ones that I want to highlight today is this concept of a lack of a unifying purpose. And especially, I think, more and more germane today because so many families have had a liquidity event. They no longer have an operating company to have that sense of community or shared purpose within the family. What are best practices on, on how to create that kind of unifying sense of purpose to keep yeah, one of the things we've, family. yeah, we sort of tried to pioneer in it. We can talk more about the gathering and if you want to, Brian, but is looking at, is you have that liquidity event and you say, okay, now we have a bunch of money. What are we going to do? And typically there's sort of an industry with built in assumptions of what you have to do to preserve and protect that. But, you know, every family office is different, but I've had four clients sell or prepare to sell that have said, we probably don't want that model. And to simplify the adage, you know, imagine a business model where you have one client who is also your boss, who doesn't understand your industry and probably doesn't want to. And the only way to get new clients is birth or marriage. So that's a pretty tough business model, I think, to sell. And then that lack of purpose, you know, Peter Drucker said something, I'm not probably going to get it exactly right, but profit is like oxygen. Both are necessary for life, but hardly a good reason for living. So what I see far too often in these family offices, there isn't a unifying purpose. You know, making money seldom is a great purpose. So whereas when you had a business, there was a drive, a shared mission, the employees, the impact on the community, that seems to get lost when you have a family office. And then related to that, the other big design flaw is lack of ownership. The family sort of outsources that to the staff, and that has a lot of baked in problems. So if you're not really taking ownership for a business, and if you're not really educated or working on it, it's sort of destined to impact not only the business, but the family. And Jesus, in, in Europe, is the concept of a family office becoming more widespread? Or I know typically families own and operate these companies for multiple generations, but has private equity kind of changed that culture and community in Europe? It's starting to change it. Obviously, yes, private equity is more, more used and spread in the U.S., it's been more widely often used in, 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 you know, acquiring businesses at the EU level. However, I see in Europe more such a, such a reaction uh, against private equity because there is a more kind of stunning commitment to, 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 to keep the business together in the family and not, not an issue willingness to sell it uh, to a private equity with short term, with short term kind of interests or results, right? That's something that's happening. However, more and more, what I see is that private equity, at least in Europe, adapts a little bit to what families want, which is more long-term orientation. And they tend to align more in that sense to the requirements that families here in Europe are, are used to in that sense. So that's a, that's a movement I'm, 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 I'm receiving. And at the same time, there is family businesses who, once they sold, they create single family offices. And their investments by nature, because they understand this long-term perspective of the family businesses they want to invest in, is longer term than normal private equity term. So that's, that's another movement that I'm seeing very, very often here. Greg, it seems that a lot of families I've spoken with recently, there is this inherent 
struggle with the dynamic that oftentimes a first-generation wealth creator that started the family office may not always be the best person to run the family office. So how do you manage that challenge or that dynamic? And how do you convince this probably very successful entrepreneur that maybe his or her skill sets aren't the best for running the ship day to day? That's a great point. And that's often not an easy conversation. But, you know, Brian, the, one of the charts that I sent you that came out of this effort for the gathering, I've used with four clients and it's kind of clicked with them. And it says, let's look at the mindset and practices you brought to running your business. You had expertise, you worked in and on it, you networked in the field, things like that. And oftentimes the founder of the business isn't ready, willing, or able to do that in a family office. So sort of professionalizing it, which they've often done in their business if they've had a liquidity event. So how do you bring a family enterprise mindset that says, we're going to bring our values, our skills, and our ethics into whatever the family does jointly. And just that tends to empower people to look at a family office differently. As I said, you know, I had one client where they only have one non-family financial advisor, and that's a part-time person. The family runs the investment committee. The family runs two small businesses. They did some values work. And within a year, they committed a million dollars to inner city edu education. And I think the framing of who are we, why are we doing this, and what are we doing is something that almost gets passed over when you start creating a family office because there's an immediacy, the financial stuff, the trust, and all of a sudden you're kind of locked in or baked into this design that has some real flaws that often aren't looked at. So if you can talk to that patriarch or matriarch earlier on, I found it's much easier than dismantling or changing something that's been in place for a long time. And are you seeing more families opt both to the issues that you raise, but also just structurally in today's world, the cost associated with standing up a, a full-fledged family office is, is quite high. Are you seeing a lot of families opt to move to a multifamily office platform, an RIA, or to club up with other families? Yeah, I, I think those costs, how do you outsource those? Because the other thing is, is the client of the family office, the family's needs can just become endless. You, know, you hear stories of flying a poodle on a private jet or $60,000 to get a jar of peanut butter to a family member on vacation. That enabling mindset is you know, just not good for anybody, I think. So yeah, you're seeing much more innovative approaches, much more outsourcing of things. And Jesus, are you seeing similar changes in Europe as well? People migrating to more of a, a shared outsource, either digital family office or multifamily office? Yeah, that, that in that sense is pretty similar. Actually, there is more and more even single family offices who, who do things together, they collaborate together and or they create multifamily offices between themselves. Yeah. With, with the same purpose. The important thing is that they have to share the same values and they have the same vision. That's, that's the, the only, the only way they, they will, they will successfully join together, work together. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners, featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. Greg, you referenced the gathering 
a few times. Would you mind kind of extrapolating exactly what that is for us? Sure. About a year ago, Jill Barber, who is the president of SIMI, a family office that serves and is owned by the Matil family, we started saying, how do we get a discussion about family offices and where they're going and what's happening? So in February, we started with eight authors, including Jill and I, and started to collaborate with a writing consultant, help us make sure this felt like an integrated book. And two wonderful things came out of the discussions. You know, and it was just a, a real generous collaborative group. Is the chapter that became the anchor for the book was the de- design flaws and hidden assumptions became sort of the anchor. And then the other thing was the chart I mentioned, the mindset of when you started your family business and what worked, and the mindset often of family offices, it doesn't work as well. So when we after drafting these, we sent them out to 15 people we selected that we hoped to represent sort of the spectrum of the family office field, new people, very experienced people, some out-of-the-box thinkers, some conventional thinkers. And it was just an amazing event. We met at Aileron, which is a leadership institute just outside of Dayton, Ohio, beautifully designed building that the Matil family created. We had 15 invitees, including Jesus. And they read, we asked them to read two chapters, Brian. I believe every one of the 15 read the whole book. And that took some courage to sit down and give us feedback for eight hours. But they did. And I have to say, they improved the book maybe 50%. And we captured the voice of those 15 people in a chapter that we called The Voice of the Field. So uh, the process was pretty innovative. I mean, one telling comment, the authors have agreed to get together virtually in six months to reconnect and to get together one year from the date of the gathering just to update each other. So we think we've done something pretty innovative. Gen 6 has supported this and been the co-sponsor along with Simi. And we hope it's the first of many of the innovation series in Gen 6. Andrew Kite, who we've mentioned, is trying to do one next year, a similar format, but the topic would be family enterprise and mental decline, which is a giant troublesome issue. And Jesus, what was your kind of, as you reflect back to that trip and that experience, what were the highlights, the takeaways, things that may have surprised you? Yeah, sure. I think the most important thing that I got from that meeting was the the generosity of the authors to to welcome feedback from people they didn't know. And there was a really honest feedback in, in order to to really be constructive. And they were open to receive criticism or, uh, you know, good input and suggestions. And, and I think that there was, that created, well, a community sharing, an idea that, you know, we all could contribute to, to a common cause. And finally, I think that it it gave a sense of the possibility of creating a step forward after the book and, 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 and developing even further the idea that the authors started, right? So in that sense, I have to recognize the, the, the excellent idea that Greg put in place together with Jill. And I think it's a method that could really, you know, be used more often to really have better input for a, for a common gathering with when different authors are in place. And what's on the horizon there? What's, what are you all focused on? Do you have anything exciting in 2023 within the Gen 6 community? Well, you know, we have some of the top researchers in the field, Joe Astrakhan, Torsten Pieper, Claudia Astrakhan. I think we see the Generation 6 Innovation Series as kind of a, a counterbalance to that academic research, which is so important and so vital. So I think the Innovation Series is a place to sort of take a risk, to think boldly, to be a bit provocative. You know, Brian, some people wanted the book to be a how-to, almost a template where you just fill in the blanks. And we push back on that a little bit. You know, the article I did with Jill was a case study, so it's practical, and we make some concrete suggestions. But we didn't want a template. We wanted every family to struggle with some of these ideas and possibilities. 
So the book was meant to be a bit provocative. And I think, as we mentioned, Andrew doing one on mental decline, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia is such a big issue. And there's not a real clear model. How do you help somebody who's used to being in charge realize they're declining? You know, we talked to one specialist who said at a point with Alzheimer's, you no longer have the capacity to realize you're losing your capacity. So that's difficult if your parents are postal workers or university professors, but if they are worth $100 million and have a team of lawyers and accountants, it's a whole different dynamic. That leads me to another question. I was at a family office event in Nashville recently, and we, a panel discussion, and we put a challenge to the room asking people to do a line by line on their budget. If they have an operating company, a family office, or just kind of a household budget, and how many, how much resources they're actually allocating to some of these things like substance abuse, wellness, leadership development, right? These soft touch qualitative issues because EY was a sponsor and they were saying that typically less than 3% of family offices fail because of investment issues, right? It's not the technical things that get you or these deeper soft touch relationship challenges that cause the bigger problems, but it doesn't seem people aren't allocating resources to them. So how do you change, how do you change this mindset? Great, great question. Two, two sort of broad comments on that, Brian. One is Jay Hughes, James Hughes, and I started a chief learning officer group about four years ago. And I think we're up to over 40 people from many countries. I like the term chief development officer, but either one works. I think more and more families are saying we have to invest in the family's development, especially with passive wealth. There's such a risk of characters declining or you know that enabling we talked about. So families investing in the human capital is so important and yet so often neglected. You know, I worked with 24 family office leaders and only one had a coach, which is just astounding to me. I think with within generation six and within the book itself, the human capital was really one of the central themes. That if the human capital is being sacrificed at the cost of financial capital, nobody wins. You know, even the investment chapter Paul Carbone wrote is called The Antidote to Private Equity. So Paul talks about direct investing, which is fairly common, but he talks about it as a way to unify the family and motivate the rising gen. So that's the kind of holistic, innovative approach that I think we're trying to take because the opposite of, as we've said, the decline of the family's well-being, the expense of greater return is just not what I think anybody wants. And you have to believe the founder never worked that hard to create that outcome. Jesus, I saw you nodding when I asked the question. Sure. You know, something you want to add to that? No, if, if, I, if I may come back to, to, to the previous question, I have to say that what I find particularly interesting at this G6 is that we have a team, not myself, that, that's what I can say, of the best researchers in the field. And with that basis, they have the mindset of consultants at the same time. So what they write has the data analysis of our best of the best academic with the eyes of a consultant. So that really helps the families to improve, right? So in that sense, T6 is, is qualitative different to any other consultancy in, 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 in that sense. So that, that was for me something important to highlight. Great. When we were going through the talking points that you submitted before, there was one that really stood out to me, which was this comment that many wealthy people do not think of themselves as rich. It would be better if they did. Could you expound on that for me? Yeah. And, you know, Jill Shipley, not Jill Barber, but Jill Shipley at Tiedemann wrote the chapter on wealth and did just a fabulous job. She gave the opening talk at the gathering. But she said that wealthy people are one of the few groups where you can sort of criticize or condemn publicly with no sense of remorse or shame. So 
it's understandable that people are reluctant to admit that given the attitudes towards wealth. But I think one of the feelings is you sort of have to own it or you're going to neglect it. You know, you know, one anecdote, somebody who said, I'm only worth $100 million. That's not really rich. I think by most people's standards, it probably would be. So that denial or lack of ownership, you sort of see runs at an emotional level, not just kind of a mental or financial level. I know in the United States, at least, the, the only thing people love more than a get rich story is somebody who's rich and loses it all. Jesus, what is the culture around wealth? And I think Greg's comment about some of, of not publicity, but just ownership over you know that identity. What is that culture like in Spain or in Europe more broadly? Sure. Well, the first, the first reaction is we don't tend to show wealth. I mean, in, in Europe, there is, there is two different kind of cultural origins, Catholic and Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. Catholics tend not to show wealth and they, they tend to be discreet in that sense. However, more Protestant cultures are more prone to do it because of the Calvinism and the fact that the fact of being rich means that God is with you, right? So in that sense, there is two different kinds of cultures. But in general terms, Europeans tend to tend to not show that too much compared with 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 the American way of doing that, which is which is fair enough. I mean, there is no one way or the other, right? There is no be- one better w- way. But it's true that you you see less signs of wealth. There is more perhaps a negative perception of wealth in Europe than in the U.S. In that sense, yes. Greg, your comment led me to think about something that we've talked about on the show a lot recently, which is. You know, how do you, especially as a rising gen, create your own space for self-identification that's kind of related and leveraged by the family and or the wealth, but not subsumed by it? Great, great question. I think it's, you know, Andrew's book, Myths and Mortals, talks about the rising gen of famous leaders and how challenging that is. You know, working with the rising gen, especially at Stetson, where we had them do life plans and had some coaching and peer coaching. I think the most challenging thing for the rising gen is to feel and be perceived as credible, you know, legitimate in some field. And sometimes that involves leaving the family business to find your own identity, not always, but sometimes. But it's the one thing you can't give to your kids. You know, Brian, if you're my son and I own the Yankees and I put you at second base when everybody in the world knows you're not a good ball player, you know, that never works. And they're some of the least happy people I've seen. So working with the family to say, how do we empower the rising gen to write their own script, to find their values, to assess if they're aligned? Because you know, I, my belief is the family business can be a better option, but it is never simpler or easier. And helping the young, young, younger generation see that is a big step, I think. And are you, either of you, this, you could both comment, are you seeing these rising gen members, are you seeing any of them opt out? of being, you know, just saying, hey, I'm going to exercise my put call or my buy sell, or I'm just not interested. And it could be some of the factors you mentioned. I know there's, there is a sense that, you know, oftentimes the wealth can be a burdensome or they don't want to be associated with this population of people that can be construed as evil in the minds of certain media outlets. Are you seeing that take place in the families that you're working with? I probably see more of it played up in the media. I see families thinking and rethinking I think in the, you know, we're talking about family offices. Sometimes when you get to a fifth generation, you know, a hundred family members or a hundred households, even, you know, we worked with families where some of the adults 40 years old have never met other family members. So I think when you have that kind of lack of connection, lack of cohesion or purpose, then it becomes an economic decision. I think some of the 
sort of pushing back against the business. I've seen some cases of that, but like I said, it seems like it's a bigger issue issue in the media maybe than it is in reality. Hey, Zeus? Yep. I, I do agree with that. And at the same time, what I see in 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 some families is that next generous want to pursue their own dream with more purpose at some point. And they they just use family money to create their 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 own way. Or in the case of family offices, they want to reshape the family office goal and give more mission and, and vision to it and not only have financial returns, but give it more purpose, impact-oriented investments. And as, as Greg was saying before that, that direct investments could really create something positive for the society they live in. And that's something that next generation just drive me through. That's, that's there's several cases I know in that sense. So in the States, we have kind of Rockefeller is known as being the first family office. You're talking about 19th century. From the perspective of European families, that's that's very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so what are some lessons maybe that, you know, some of these long lasting multi-generational European families could some U.S. families take away from them? Any lessons learned or thoughts you might have about best practices you've seen with some of these families that have persisted through some very volatile times over hundreds of years? Yes. Well, that's a great question, Brian. Actually, there's a group in Europe, it's called Les Enochiens, that gathers families that at least they've been together 200 years. So, and I've been regularly to their meetings. They have, they have created a couple of studies trying to squeeze the essence of what those families have in common, right? They all say that, for instance, talking about the pandemic, right? When you go to those meetings, say, hey, well, you know, my family has come through not only two world wars, the Napoleon wars, and then the, the Russian invasion, and we're still here, right? They, they have in common that they have worked family, the family structure and governance structure to differentiate family issues with governance issues very well. They have in common that with them, the business orientation of the family business itself can change and has changed during the years, but the family unity is what holds them together. So that's that's the main important asset. And they work on the reputation and legacy of, of, of the family more than only oriented on the business profits. That's what holds them together. And, and that's something I see, you know, quite often in, in, in those cases. And they have worked a lot, the values, the purpose of the family to keep them together. Greg, I saw you nodding. Any characteristics or fact patterns that you see consistent across families that are doing this well, in your opinion, in the States? Yeah. You know, Joe Astrahan and Torsen people looked at families across the globe that last over 100 years in business together. And their model was you needed four types of cohesion to survive. So you needed family cohesion. In other words, we like and get along with each other. You needed some benefits typically that flowed through the family. So family financial cohesion. Then business emotional, we're proud of what we do. We're proud of how we use our money. We're proud stewards. And then business financial, you know, some return. But all four of those are things that we've used with clients to say, where are you at? Where do you want to improve these? And it really ties in to, you know, the lack of purpose that we've talked about. It ties into, do we get along? Do we even know each other? Brian, it, it also, we've talked a lot about sort of a holistic reframing of things. One of the last heavy academic things I did before I retired from Stetson we surveyed kids who'd been through the major, and they said the most beneficial thing they got out of it was reframing their family enterprise 
from either I join there and work there till I retire or I don't to a continuum of opportunities. I could be on the family council. I could be an informed owner. I could come back and work 10 years from now. And I think that's a great way to look at family enterprise is it's a continuum of opportunities. But if you want to be involved beyond being just a family member, again, you have to be credible. That entitlement is just toxic to families. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for the time. We're, we're bumping up against our allotment here, but Greg, it's great to have you finally come out of each other for a long time. Jesus, yeah. it's great to connect with you all. Thank you. If you could, if folks are interested in, in connecting with either of you, learning more about the work you're doing, Generation 6, the other organizations you're a part of, what's the, what's the best way for them to reach out? I think through the website, generation6thedigit.com is a way to reach either one of us, probably. Sure. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Please do leave a rating and commentary on your favorite part of this conversation. And, and something that I ask folks that come on the show, we'll start with Greg and we'll go to Jesus, but do you have a daily practice in your life that helps bring peace? Oh, great question. I meditate every day and it's been about 45 years and I try to walk every day and I try to pray every day. Jesus, do you have anything that you do? I do practice sports very oftenly. I try to eat healthy and I try to digest what makes me feel awkward into positive thinking. I love it. Thank you both for sharing and thank you both for the time and keep up the good work. I look forward to staying abreast on what you all are doing with Generation 6. Great. Thank you very much. Thank Brian. you. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.